0: Hey, welcome to episode 12 of the LSQ Podcast. Hi, I'm Jenny LSQ, and I'm excited in this episode to share with you an interview with multi-instrumentalist, producer, singer-songwriter, composer, and all-around awesome dude, Rostam. I first met Rostam Bob Monglich, I guess about 12 years ago now, when it was basically love at first listen for me with his former band Vampire Weekend, and I had the chance to write about them early on for Rolling Stone magazine when I was there full-time. And Rostam and I became friends and have had numerous conversations on the record and off in the years since, but never one as focused as the conversation you're about to hear. A one-on-one at Rostam's place in Los Angeles where we got to dig in and talk about his childhood musical influences, his creative evolution, his decision to step away from being a full-time member of Vampire Weekend a couple of years ago, his debut solo album Half Light, his work as a producer with artists like Haim and Charlie XCX and Carly Rae Jepsen, and much more. So... I hope you'll hang out and listen to the entire thing. And after the interview with Rostam, you get an excerpt from a conversation I had back in 2014 with Beck leading up to the release of his Grammy-winning album, Morning Phase. But first, let's dig into this Rostam chat, and where we begin here is with Rostam commenting on how in the couple of years since he revealed he was stepping away from Vampire Weekend, it's sort of felt to him like time was flexible.
1: so weird to put like the chronology together because like kind of changing my relationship to Vampire Weekend from you know being a member of the band to not being a member of any band like that was something that was uh, I guess now like four years ago that was a like a decision that you know was you know felt like a really an inevitability uh and yeah it's interesting to to like look back on just kind of feeling like nervous about what the right way to talk about that was yeah and I don't know if I did the best job if I'm totally honest but I like I remember like texting a few people that I trusted and I think you were one of them being like what do you think it was like saying this and maybe you gave me some notes some other friends gave me some notes like about what To say what, what not to say, yeah, it's weird. Some things that you want to, like, you want to express, you want to, like, say it, like, in a concise way that doesn't, I don't know, doesn't say too much, but gets, you know, cuts to the point. Yeah. (laughs) That's the same thing. Not saying too much and cutting to the point. That's the same thing. What What do I really mean? You want, I don't know, to... But you don't do
0: you-, want to, you don't my my sense at the time when you were like, "What do you think of if I say it this way it was like, "Well, you don't want to over explain or like seem like you're defensive but also out of respect for the fact that." People will be. I remember saying to you, like, you know, people are going to be sad. There are going to be people who are yeah. like, "No, it's not the same," and it's like a thing you have to respect that when, in communicating what, what, you know, what you're choosing to do. But I mean, zooming out from that somewhat, I'm curious now in 2018 as all of this exciting stuff is is beginning to come out. I mean, does it feel like, well, yeah, this is this is why I made those. This is what I wanted to be my life to be by. By 2018 is that I have my own music and then I'm available for whatever projects come up or is it just like you're like Oh, it's nice. It worked out this way. I figured something good would happen How much of a master plan once you made that decision like how much of a master plan? Do you feel like no you are executing your vision
1: for like this phase of your career? Yeah, that's the thing I I think I got into a zone where I was thinking about my career and I I really feel like I've exited that zone now where I just can let it exist, let it happen and not think about it. But I think I had to for a second, just be like, you know, what do you want to do? Because no longer being a member of a band kind of changes, you know, what you can do and what you can't do. And there's, you know, there's nothing that you can't do. You can do whatever you want to yeah. do. So it's like, what, you, what are the things that are important to you? And that ultimately, I think that's a healthy way to think about what your career is. There's a lot of unhealthy ways to think about your career. But like, what is important to you? That's like the most healthy way to think about it.
0: And so what, what are the top fat things that are most important to you in terms of whether you feel like content with and excited about what you're working on? Because I know one ingredient of what you weren't sure was working for you was actually just touring and being on the road. And I remember you saying you weren't sure if that's like a lifestyle that you
1: wanted to be kind of stuck in. That's interesting, yeah. And I, I think it's evolved for me. I think it was, some, you know, kind of coming off the road in 2014 and then the next, the next time I got on a stage, I was, you know, with... Hamilton Lighthouser, we were playing these kind of special one off shows around the release of the record that we made together. And I started to something kind of like, it was like cracking an egg or something. I don't (laughs) don't know if that's the right analogy, but it felt like that. I felt like it was something this new thing. And I felt like, oh, I'm on the stage. Because I love these songs and that was always the case. I would always love the songs that we made in Vampire Weekend and I love the songs that I made with Hamilton and it was it was always about that love. But then it was also in the you know, I couldn't ignore the fact that I was playing these shows with him and it could go anywhere from there you know we could get on a st- we're going to get on a stage together at the end of July at the Newport Folk Festival i'm going to try and go to that i love that <laughs> festival yeah i've never been to that festival oh, and awesome. i've just heard it's amazing and there's so many amazing things about it so just the idea that it, the future could be anything you wanted it to be that, and then disconnecting this kind of st- the stress of a, a cycle mm mm-hmm. Which is, I don't know if every listener who listens to this is going to understand what that word means, but if you don't know what an album cycle is, yeah, it's the whole thing of making an album, doing press for it, making videos for it, releasing songs, doing promotions, going out, you know, going around the world, maybe even before the album comes out, playing songs live on the radio early in the morning, going on tour... And after you've, you know, toured as much as you could tour, you do it all again. So yeah. that's, a, that's an album cycle. So when people talk about being on cycle or off cycle or what that means.
0: Yeah, it's a lo- it can be a long time, though, if things are going well. The better it's going, the longer it can be, that cycle. And, and more so what artists, I feel like now more than ever, are saying, perhaps because it's so easy now to imagine breaking things up into different units of song, you know, one song at a time, two songs a year, whatever it might be, that artists feel more enslaved by the cycle now because they realize, like, wait, why are we doing it? We don't need to insist on record full-length album, release full-length album, promote full-length album, tour the world for a long time. Maybe you can have a year where you do some festivals but don't release more than a couple songs. That sort of free, more free-flowing situation seems to be... I think a lot of artists, like Tegan and Sarah, when I spoke to them, they're were like, "We're taking a break, and we're going to think about: Do we need to do things that way? Is there another way to do things? Why have we? Why do we feel trapped in the album cycle? You know." And That's you're kind of. I think it's. I mean, I've known you for a minute. You're kind of like an ADD kind of guy, and the idea of like not having to be uh, not stuck with, but just like this is the only thing I'm going to work on for now? Like, you seem like a guy who probably you want to be able to just pursue whatever kind of, like, creative whim.
1: Yeah, I don't know if ADD is the right word, because I think I'm actually, like, very focused and concentrated, maybe to a fault, obsessive even. Yeah, and I don't want to use ADD cavalierly, because it's an actual
0: diagnosis and
1: everything. Yeah, I think I probably have OCD more than ADD, and, like, that's what... That's I think the kind of energy that it takes to finish an album a lot of times, and so I'm I'm careful about entering that world because I don't know how not to give a hundred and ten percent, and it's you know it, it takes over your life. There's you don't you don't get to choose when it's done. It you know it's like a it becomes like an animal. It tells you when it's done. So. Yeah even it's a, when it's someone else's song. That's yeah, that's the thing. To me it's like it doesn't matter if it's a Rostam song or a song that I'm producing for another artist. I I want to make it as good as it can be and whatever that takes, um I'm, I'm ready to go there if I commit to finishing the song. It's like it's going to be hard for me to find a middle ground. So that's why yeah, like you said, I I feel like now if you, I don't know. If I want to enter those kind of projects, I can, and I know I know what it's like, but it's kind of, yeah, it's just kind of fun to be able to. I feel like we haven't given the listeners too much context so far about yeah. who I am or what I do, but yeah, maybe it's worth giving that kind of sort of like oh we oh we will. <laughs> you you will you can do that sure we're We're gonna maybe i don't i don't have to do we're gonna do it we're gonna we're gonna get to that
0: don't you worry um i mean nowadays when you're when you when you have a free moment where maybe a project's winding down and there are others that aren't quite ready to go yet do you like do you imagine artists that you know what you would do with a song of theirs that you haven't even you know i mean or Do you sort of fantasize about like, oh, if I could just get into the studio with this person, I already have an idea of what I might suggest they try?
1: Yes and no. Yes, I do have people like that that I think of, you know, I think we could make something cool together. And I feel kind of like I'm not in a rush to get there. Most of the people that I work with, I know personally in some capacity and it's a kind of an organic process that brings us into the studio together. So, I, I feel like right now I have like a good crew of people that I'm making music with, people that I've worked with really for like some of them for like 12 years and some of them for 12 months. And I think it will continue to be that way. You I'll, and I
0: have known each other for approximately 12 years. Yeah. Um, since, uh, 2007, approximately, Mm -hmm. uh, when we met because I wrote something about Vampire Weekend for Rolling Stone, Yeah. Yeah, but also we had, like, some mutual friends in common in New York, and I had been lucky enough to just, by being in New York and just having met a couple of people who went to college with you guys, like, heard about Vampire Weekend early and went to see you guys play at Mercury Lounge, um, was that the first Mercury Lounge show that VW played that night that we did our interview our historic interview?
2: <laughs> it feels at right. The library.
0: Yeah, that feels right. What do you remember most fondly from like those early days when things with Vampire Weekend were starting to pop off on, on kind of like another level and, and people like Rolling Stone were starting to take notice? I mean, did it do you think in retrospect that you were even able to sort of a- appreciate that experience at the time or, or was it very exciting for you
1: guys or for you in particular? It was very exciting, and, and the excitement kind of started when we played shows in college. Um, and three out of four of us graduated college in 2006, and for the next year or so, we would get booked to play these shows um, at, like, literary houses, which, you know would be like the Columbia equivalent of a frat party. It wasn't very fratty, but it was a party, and we would perform, and it would you know, it would get packed. And those shows had a certain excitement that transferred to, the sh- to a, a lot of the shows that we played downtown in New York um, over the course of that next year. And I think that was kind of where the excitement stemmed from. That it was like, it felt like a real thing because um, we were playing those shows.
0: Right, and some of the people, some of your friends from uptown would come and get the party started, and, and it felt like you all, it, there were fans at the show already, mixed in with people who were like, what the fuck is this?
1: Well, yeah, they were our friends, a lot of them, and but some of them were not our friends. Some of them were kids who went to Columbia who uh, had, you know, someone had shared the music with them, because... I thought it was smart to make a cd the so called blue cdr it was like this idea of making something that was kind of finished but kind of unfinished and it was kind of like you were getting let into something you're getting let in on something early right so the blue cdR has like ten songs on it and nine of those ended up on the first vampire weekend album and uh, like three of them are different but
0: and you had already at that point been, even while you were still in school, like getting some paid work in this working in the studio.
1: Am I remembering that <laughs> correctly, right? My first job out of college was working for a film composer who actually used to be the lead singer of a rock band called Shutter to Think. His name's Craig Wedren, and he's still a film composer. And, uh,
0: and how, how had that
1: position come your way? It came because he scored a film that Mike Cahill and Britt Marling made about, it was a documentary about uh, boxers and ballerinas in Miami. And they kind of just, I I knew Mike and Britt because they went to college with my brother and uh, they all worked on films together. Mike, Britt and Zal, my brother. And, um, they connected me with Craig and I had made this CD of like all this music that I was working on. Some of it sounded like purely classical music. Some of it was like Vampire Weekend songs. Some of it was Discovery songs. Some of it was solo music. I made this 15 track CD for Craig and I was basically like, this is what I can do. And he was like, do you want to come work for me? And so he gave me my first kind of real music job so what what were you what were your responsibilities i was working on this film called the 10 which is 10 short films about the 10 commandments hosted I by paul red
0: love that movie
1: i wrote some of the music in that movie. what
0: i love that movie so much when i saw it in the movie theater that i went to see it in the movie theater again which like i never do just go. out of not out of judgment but just out of like laziness or whatever You guys, the 10 is fucking hilarious. Winona Ryder has a hilarious vignette in it. Paul Rudd is amazing. It's
1: so good. Yep. There you go. There you go. (laughs) So the 10. So So you did that and was that it? I contributed to a couple of moments in that. And then I thought, you know, I was at this point where I was like, do I want to go to grad school for music? Do I want to pursue film scoring? Do I want to be a record producer do I want to be in a band? I was in a band. It was Vampire Weekend. We you know, we started it was most of our last semester of college when it started. And I felt like this was an opportunity to like record write songs, record music, produce an album. And you know, that all happened and the other guys in the band really like they trusted me to produce the first Vampire Weekend album. I'd never produced an album before, so they believed in me. And and I have to thank Craig for giving me a computer, you know, that was, like, souped up to score films. And I used that to, to record and mix a lot of the first Vampire Weekend album, so...
0: I want to go b- b- back in time, um, and some of this is stuff that we've talked about in other contexts. Sure. But I do want to kind of go back and and, uh, and dig into some of the little baby Rostam influences. So yeah, so tell me about your your earliest interest in, in picking up an instrument and playing music. How old were you?
1: I think I was five or six, and I wanted to play the flute because my brother was learning clarinet. And I wanted to, you know, be kind of like my brother, but maybe a little different. And and then so I ended up learning recorder because I couldn't play flute yet. I was just too young. And so the recorder was the first instrument that I learned. And I remember I had like this part in the kindergarten circus, which was playing a recorder. And I think I was like one year ahead of everyone else in the class who would learn recorder as part of the curriculum the next year. But I was just like one year ahead. But um, so the recorder was like the first instrument that I learned. And then.
0: Oh, yeah. Didn't they cast you as a snake charmer or something? Yeah. How did yeah, you know no, that? I remember. I think you told me that. It's so, just like, oh, yeah, that was not. You've
1: interviewed brutal. me so many times. <laughs> you know my life better than I do at this point. So. um but it does remind me of like this neighbor that my parents had, that my dad asked this neighbor, he said, our kids wanna play instruments, what what do we do? Do we get them the instruments? What if they don't want them? You know, After a while, what if they were, you know, what if it's just a whim? Like what, should we have it in the house? Like, should we leave it in the house? What do we do? We don't know. And this neighbor who was a bunch of years older, said you just buy them or you rent them leave them in the house see what happens worst case scenario you can just sell them in a couple of years if they don't touch them or sell them when they go to college or whenever they get older whatever it is just leave it in the house and my parents took that to heart and so they you know it 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 definitely impacted me to have instruments around and so what instruments did they get well we had You know, we had like a digital piano, which kind of looked like a real piano and kind of played like a real piano. But it was a digital one. And, I, you know, to this day, that's in my parents' house in D.C., which actually they're going to sell that house this year. So that piano is going to go away. But like that was I remember learning. I remember learning how to play Imagine by John Lennon on that piano and the way that I learned it, this is kind of indicative of my path. I learned it because at that point I could read guitar tablature Mm. and I got this magazine called Guitar World, which I was a subscriber to. Yeah. And they had the tabs for the guitar version of Imagine Mm -hmm. that you know there is I mean there is no I think I feel like maybe John Lynn played it live in Central Park on acoustic guitar mm-hmm. once, but like this was just like an just like an adaptation of a piano song mm-hmm. and I was like figuring out the piano version from the guitar version Damn. and that's that's basically like that was like basically how I learned to play piano was through guitar and then when I was seventeen, which is really late. I was like I should probably take some lessons in piano. But and the guitar was self-taught. I had a guitar teacher. So I played the flute from age 6 until about 13. I burned out real hard on flute. I was like I never want to play flute again. <laughs> and I was like I wanna... fuck you flute. I was I was like I want to learn electric guitar. And my flute teacher was really cool. She was like I think I know a guy, he's good, he's cool, he's like kind of a rock guy, but he does classical too, and like, I think he'd be a good teacher, and so then I started taking guitar lessons, and that was like the beginning of, kind of like, I think a different relationship maybe to music. I guess it, it made me more interested in songwriting, whereas... When you're playing the flute, it's kind of hard to be interested in songwriting, right? It's hard to like sing and play flute at the same time. I think some people can do it,
0: but also, I guess with guitar, once you have kind of the once you know what the building blocks are of the songs you like, I can see how that would translate into like, what if I rearrange them this way and sing something different? so, this is this is you said from when you were starting when you were 13 that you started playing guitar uh-huh right so what were your, what what were you listening to at I that time? i was listening point? to like bush oh yeah glycerine get in there
1: glycerine machine head yeah um like local h uh alter- just like a lot of alternative rock
0: yeah and so were you learning were you learning to play those songs specifically totally yeah
1: yeah i learned how to play all those songs nirvana and then my guitar teacher also was like, you should learn this too. And it was like Eric Clapton. Um, Tears in Heaven? Maybe I asked to learn that one, actually. It's <laughs> a, yeah. a good song. It's well, a good song so guitar song. song. It's a good guitar song too. Like you, you can play that. You can really shred. Right. You can learn a lot out of playing that. So yeah, Tears in Heaven. One of like Jimi Hendrix, Little Wing. Right. It was like... It was kind of like, he'd be like, okay, we'll do one for you and one for me. So I wanted to learn Mr. Jones by Counting Crows. I want to learn High and Dry by Radiohead. And he wanted to teach me Jimi Hendrix. And he wanted to teach me like some classical guitar and some jazz, which I had, at, I had, I was into some, I was into jazz, and I and he was kind of like pushing me further down that road, which was cool, right? And the like the most technical shit that I got into was not Van Halen because that was just wasn't my music, but the Stray Cats. So Brian Setzer, damn, his guitar solos are kind of like the most technical stuff that I can still play on guitar, and to
0: this day. And so, were you beyond those? Are those are obviously artists whose songs were on the radio and were hugely popular at the that time? The Stray Cats? Well, not the Stray Cats, but I mean, you know, like the Bush type stuff.
1: Oh, yeah, were, the Bush. Were, oh, were yeah. Bush. You,
0: were you already at that point starting to be like the kind of music fan who would try and go go see these bands in concert? Or what, what was A the sort bit. of what, what kind of pushed yeah, I mean, you into being more my first, ex- exploratory
1: with your music taste? My first concert was semisonic. At the 9.30 Club. Damn. Which I've been reluctant to talk about, but I was really into Closing Time, the song. Yeah. I was really into singing in my sleep. They had a lot of great songs on that record. And, uh, yeah, I think my I convinced my brother to take me to the concert. At the
0: 9.30 Club? Mm-hmm. Uh, where I'm assuming that was sort of your, became your
1: regular spot to go see shows?
0: Uh... To an extent, growing up near D.C.?
1: Yeah. I mean, you got you to understand, though, I didn't really live in D.C. after I was 18, so I didn't see a ton of shows. Right. So when you got
0: to New York, were you, I mean, by, that t- by this time, had you started to, did it take over your life? I mean, or was it just a sort music. of... Yeah, like, the interest in music, music technique, and, like, skill, when did you start to feel that that was a thing you were kind of
1: obsessed with? Day, from the moment that I got to Columbia, I knew I was going to major in music. I have friends to this day that I met on that you know, first day. There was something called diatonic harmony and counterpoint, which is a year-long class that you have to take at Columbia if you want to be a music major. And then it's followed by another year-long class called Chromatic Harmony and Counterpoint. Can you give me the
0: (laughs) For Idiots version of what Diatonic Harmony and Counterpoint is?
1: It's basically... Okay. So, like, people talk about, like, classical music having rules. And that's one way to think about it. But you can also just think about it as, like... It's idiomatic. Mm. Like, in the way just, like... Like, you can learn French, and some people can speak French, but they don't speak idiomatically, Mm. right? Like, French people can smell you. Even if you're saying the right words, they know that you're not French. Because you're not really speaking exactly their language. Right. And that's the same thing with classical music. So it's like... So they give you those couple of classes
0: at the beginning to teach you
1: some of the idioms, you mean? It's not some of the idioms. It's basically like... What did the classical composers do, and what did they not do? Mm. Like, okay, And you can you know I can hear I can hear it in other artists that I know that have studied classical music. There's certain things that they do that people who haven't studied classical music don't. and and sometimes their music sounds classical as a result, and sometimes it it doesn't exactly what I'm like, oh, that person's a classical head. Interesting. That's de- yeah, that's definitely something I feel about Julian Casablancas. Like the stuff that he writes, a lot of those like guitar lines from dating back from like this first strokes album, they're like really classical, and they're you know they're hidden in other. It's hidden in a different context, but I think a lot of people who study classical music they're like, oh yeah, that's that's a classical thing. that, yeah. that little moment there, that's such a classical thing. And, or like Regina Spector, mm-hmm. she, I feel like she has a lot of those moments, whether she's just on a piano or she has different instruments. I, I can kind of hear that coming through, which is interesting because I'm mentioning these kind of quote-unquote New York artists. Right. And I think there is a kind of connection between classical music and the New York sound. Mm-hmm. And that's been around since the Velvet Underground at mm-hmm. John Cale on... Stuff And since, you know, like someone like Arthur Russell, who played classical cello and then also made dance music and made everything in between. So like,
0: yeah, that's interesting. I've never thought about that before. And I wonder if it does sort of just have to do with proximity to just the high culture music stuff in New York that you have things like Lincoln Center. You know what I mean? That it's like. The, the idea of classical music as being a contemporary category in certain cities is more alive than in other cities. And in a way, I imagine that if you are based in certain cities and other parts of even just the US, you might have a little bit of Zydeco in your music, you know what I mean? Or you might have a little bit of, uh, you know, roots Americana in your music without even having to think about it too much. I know with Casablancas, I- for instance, I know he went to music college for a couple of semesters, um, and I don't think that was his focus, but, um, and with Regina Spector, obviously she was classically trained as a kid.
1: Yeah, so I think what you mentioned about New York is true. It's true for classical music, and it's true for all kinds of music. It's true for every kind of music. You take the subway in New York, and suddenly you're hearing African music. You're hearing Ukrainian folk music. You're hearing classical music played by you know a solo violinist. you're hearing jazz mm-hmm. you're hearing you're hearing all these different kinds of music all the time. It's in your face. You can't escape it and it is inspiring and it, it does affect you positively. I think it I think it def- affected all of us that that have made music and lived in New York.
0: yeah, I mean it's interesting, you know, even just going back to touching on. The early days of Vampire Weekend when some people who were writing about the music were fixated on whether any, whether a portion of the influences felt pretentious or, or, or uh, appropriative, I guess. But you think about an L.A. artist like Beck, who grew up here in a, a multicultural city where, similarly, in your car you can drive mm-hmm. around and if you have your windows down you'll hear all kinds of music and it's going to get in there. You know, I mean, it is, you know, obviously the topic of like that kind of appropriation is so fascinating in that I can't really, I don't know what, you know, what's (laughs) where the line is, what's appropriative and what's not. You know, I have, I have sympathy for artists who try and be respectful, but also who want to include in their music some of the available tapestry of sounds, even if it doesn't come from where they come from, you know. Was there ever a moment in those early days with, uh, with Vampire Weekend and in your early evolution as an artist yourself where you felt like you had to assess that criticism legitimately and think about whether to, to factor it in at all? I mean, did that, did that stuff bum you guys out or you in
1: particular? It, it took time for me and I think it was something that Me and Ezra were kind of figuring out how to talk about because we both had complex relationships with whiteness. And I, for example, would never in my life identify as white. I understand that I pass as white. And it took me a second. It took me a few years, really. To understand what that meant about like who I am, mm. and um, I think you know, for a lot of Iranians who escaped America during an extremely like xenophobic, Islamophobic era, they have this relationship towards their ethnicity where they really want to downplay it. There is a tendency to just be like, you know, for some people to be like we're American now which is really not my parents they, they're they very proud of their uh, their culture but I think that for all Iranians like who who experience a lot of oppression there's this desire to just be like oh here's a place where we pass we can say we're Italian if we have to which is something that, it, that some Iranians do do which is completely crazy to me, but there are some Iranians who say, we're Italian. It it sounds totally crazy. But so, yeah, this is like a really, I'm talking about really specific, loaded, complex relationship towards whiteness. And that was something that in Vampire Weekend, a lot of, it's important to note, white music critics were not well equipped to talk about and were not able to see the shades of gray of and sort of kind of like we're trying to trying to find they were trying to fish with dynamite and I think some of it was destructive some of the articles um, that were written about vampire weekend were very destructive and and to me personally like I I didn't really know how to talk about it yet when a lot of that stuff was happening and I and I think at this point like there's a little there's a better perspective but I was also young yeah since we are in a
0: new era now not just when yeah. it is easier to talk about one's own complicated relationship with any aspect of one's identity that whether it's it's whiteness or anything else for that matter. You now have, you're the captain of your own ship as an artist. It's just Rostam. It's just you. And whatever you say is just representing only yourself. And I have enjoyed watching you come out more with your identity in your music. I think that's one Mm. of the things about Half-Life that I like so much and in the lyrics and the sound of it is mm-hmm. that it feels more like you're like, it's got, obviously it sounds Vampire weekendy in the ways that's like, oh yeah, that's the Rostam. Mm-hmm. You know, the the sort of classical Wes anderson kind of thing <laughs> that you do. But also elsewhere, just being like, hey, here's a little bit of what I'm about and I'm writing songs for me and for you. Mm. I mean, do you feel like there was a, has there been a point where you've kind of counseled yourself to just be... To be open about things in, in your own music, and not to shroud things in mystery
1: too much. Yeah, i <laughs> i i do enjoy you know speaking of, on topics. I mean, let's that, just talk that are about, interesting yeah. to me as a you know in songs. Right. I think songs are a really cool place that I get to talk about being the son of immigrants. Talk about things that I think are unfair in the world. Talk about, um, like love in a universal sense, and love in a way that I think people who don't identify as straight can, you know, connect with. Which I think there are differences there, and uh, and it, it's interesting because like this summer I'm going to spend about six weeks in Provincetown. Okay. Which is a it's a it's the last town on Cape Cod. I don't know if you have you ever been there? I haven't. It's a cool place. It was the first gay town in America. And it's still probably like one of the gayest places in America. Okay. Where you can walk down the street and literally everyone's gay. Right. And the straight people have that kind of look on their faces like you know they're just their eyes are darting a little bit they're like you know maybe we don't fit in here <laughs> and it's like the, you reverse everything's right, reversed first, yeah and it's what's really cool about Provincetown there's these different weeks so there's like girl splash which is kind of like lesbian mm-hmm. week and there's bear week and there's family week it really feels like especially on family week you really feel like you're living in the future you feel like you're seeing like the next stage of human existence where it's like mom and mom are pushing a stroller and you know, dad and dad have two kids and a golden retriever. It's like, you're really in this future world. And uh, a bunch of people who have asked, who have told that I'm going to be spending like this much time out there. They've been like, Oh, you're going to bring, you're going to bring some studio equipment. You're going to record. And, I don't think I am. Mm. But one thing I do want to do is write a book of short stories. And what attracts me to writing a book of short stories is that I feel like there's certain things that I want to say that I don't get to say in songs because it's just too complicated. Right, right. I, I guess there's things that I want to say in a song that maybe you shouldn't say in a song. You know, maybe it's better to say in a short story, Hmm. things about your identity, like things about being gay, things about being an immigrant, being Iranian, identifying with other immigrants, just like there's, I think there's things that making the album Half Light, releasing it, touring it around the world. And around America and, you know, spending time with people after the shows, it really, I think it, it kind of impacted me in a way. It kind of made me like, yeah, want to say more. Right. And I think it's, and thats it's been nice for me to take a break from music when I've been in Provincetown in the past, which has only been for one or two weeks, you know. And this time it's like a little bit longer. And I, I'm excited to just like, because, you know, I... I get these like, my fingers get. He's moving his fingers right now. My fingers they get. If I'm not, if I haven't played piano or like used Pro Tools or played guitar in, in a few weeks, my fingers start to get twitchy. I have like, I need to be doing something. Like I get this weird thing. It's like a black cloud. It's like guilt or, or, or like unsatisfied feelings. Like I need to be doing something. I need to be making something with my hands, you know, maybe, maybe pottery is the way to do it. <laughs> I don't know, I'd rather type. Do
0: you write, have you written short stories since? I past? have,
1: I've, read, written, I've written a lot of short stories when I was in high school and college, and I haven't since, so I wanted to just kind of like jump back in. Are you
0: gonna have like friends come visit and stuff during that but,
1: time? Do you have friends who? who yeah, yeah. Then, you know? I do, I have a lot of friends. Um, who, who, who want <laughs> to come who want to come visit and I'd love to have them visit and they have visited before but it's it's funny it's so much easier for me to talk about this project I would never do this about an album right but it's so fucking easy and fun for me to talk about this like book of short stories which may never come out right, right. And I don't feel anything about it because like you know Publishers Weekly's not gonna pick this up but <laughs> <laughs> Publishers weekly. What do you Probably. mean? They're not? <laughs> but like, I don't know. If I like talked about all these songs that are coming out, it could just become like this deluge of like weird news stories, which I don't want. Yeah. So I'd rather just talk about this book of short stories. That's going to be amazing.
0: Well, right. And, and and most other things you're working on are other people get to decide whether or when it comes out. And they're coming out. Yeah. They're
1: coming out. But yes, I don't <laughs> know when. Come exactly I don't know I think as a producer it's like not it's not your role to hype up songs that haven't come out yet mm. like once they come out then you can talk about them but I just don't I feel like it's too early until they're out because you never know what's going to happen until a song comes out it's crazy you don't want to you don't want to jinx it you don't want to jinx it and you yeah you don't know what's gonna you know you you don't know what it's gonna be yeah. until it is Yeah, it's it's just
0: living in a vacuum and it's sort of like hard to assess until it enters the world
1: a lot of times even you know how you're paid how you split the the publishing for a song what your deal is all this stuff you don't work out until the song is done until the song is out sometimes sometimes years later people are like how do you not have a producer deal for that song it came out two years ago well that's life yeah that's life and if you make if you go into the studio with all these contracts written I don't know what it would be I've almost I've just about never done it right
0: because it's like you're messing with the art right you gotta see what it becomes and then decide
1: yeah 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 so maybe I've already said too much about the book of short stories but that's just me you know (laughs) I'm not going to get in worry. trouble. You haven't said too much. You I'm not going to get in trouble. So lo-
0: roughly speaking, though, the plan for the rest of the year, other than think so- more songs that will come out that it's too soon to talk about and, and going to Provincetown for six weeks, I mean, are is there more Rostam touring in the second half of the year? And
1: are you starting to think about like the next Rostam album? Because I know you, you worked on the songs for that for a while. I'm start- starting to think about it. There's a new song I've been playing live. I've played it at every Rostam show in 2018. It's called In a River. I think I yeah. played at the show that you at were the at. El Rey, Yeah. I wrote it on the mandolin, and it's the first song I ever wrote on mandolin. It's been so fun to play that song live. At this point, I must have played it like twenty or thirty times already. So I have to record that song and put it out. That's that's going to happen in twenty eighteen. Yeah. For sure.
0: More shows though. More. Sh- yeah, I have
1: the the show at Newport Folk Fest with Hamilton Lighthouse, which. We're really excited about that, and I have a show, the Fonda, September fourteenth. After five nights of Phoenix, you can come see Rostov. So I'm a big Phoenix fan, so I'm psyched. It's yeah, fun. It's, awesome. it's fun to play the same zone as those guys. I've known those guys for a while, and I I think Fonda is like one of the most fun places to play in L.A. because there's this awesome rooftop. Oh, yeah. Where you get to hang. You get to smoke your dubs when sweet legal weed California. <laughs> if you're me,
0: at least. Plus others. Exactly.
1: Yes. <laughs> LSQ crew on the roof of the Fonda it, getting baked before the show. How, full effect. How else could it go? It couldn't go any other way. <laughs>
0: I think I think that's all I have for you for this time, Rosty. Thank you, Jenny. Thank you for doing this. We'll come back and we'll talk about a whole bunch of other stuff some other time. I'd love
1: to. It's yeah. so fun. Let me be a regular on LSQ.
0: Well, as you heard Rostam mention, he does have a few North American shows coming up, so maybe bookmark officialrostam.com if you want to stay in the loop. And coming up next in episode 12 of LSQ, I figured I'd feature a clip from another mononymous artist-turned-producer, Beck. And also, it was just Beck's 48th birthday on July 8th, so happy belated B-Day to him. But in this clip, you'll hear it. It's actually uh, interesting because the concept of an album cycle, which Rostam was referencing, the kind of oppressiveness of that, gets, gets referenced early on uh, in this Beck clip, where we were talking about why in more recent years he'd felt inspired to take on projects besides his own albums and really dig into unconventional things like his record club or his song reader. And, and so that's what we're discussing in, in this clip right here.
2: A lot of years of pretty intensive touring, and a lot of like kind of uh, concentrated work. I think at the time I was thinking about why I was doing this or what what I got out of it, right. and in the sense of what is, you know what are do we doing this? <laughs> Not necessarily an existential thing, but you know just try to remind myself of. Uh, uh, there's a long period before I was making records. I was just making music because for, for it it, uh, it enabled certain things to happen. It was just kind of a, uh, a motivator. something connected people, and just, you know, it's so I started thinking about that because I thought, you know, you got a record deal, and you you're in your typical cycle as an artist, putting out an albums and touring. And, you know, I know, it got to a point where I felt like there's a lot of arbitrariness you know, of, um, how in the music business and, and how musicians are supposed to channel their creative impulse. <laughs> oh, yeah. And it's formalized in this way that it really isn't natural, so... I feel like I just had to break that down a little bit for myself.
1: I just not tell
2: anybody who runs the show. Yeah, we're just gonna get together and make music. So I was doing the record club thing for years before I put it out. We were just doing it for our own amusement,
0: right? Just like round up some buddies who are fun to play with and who get it and just play it.
2: And, and we would all we would all just say, "This is the best time I've had making music in years." Where and
0: where would you do it? Just say your place or
2: I had a studio or we rent a studio I mean so I just looked for things like that where just something could happen and you know get into that and I and I felt like it was it, it was a kind of liberation in a way of other bands would come in and and they could see how cause sometimes there'd be two or three bands all together and see how other people work because you tour with people and that's one thing but Recording together is really intimate. Okay, so and you and you really when you get close quarters like that you can see it, to, um, you're this shit. Like, like when Annie Clark started playing guitar we're just like She is. is a a fucking great guitar player. (laughs) Um, When you see them on stage and there's a band, and okay, they rehearsed, but you know it's something when you really just see those quarters like that, where you're standing next to somebody. singing with them you can hear their voice and your voice is with theirs and Yeah there's very something very humanizing about the whole experience. Right. And I just needed some humanizing. <laughs> yeah. After, you know, whatever eight, nine albums and tours and you know, being a whole treadmill which which I happily participated in. And, yeah. You know Understand, it's the way of the world. Right? Yeah, we have. To, I, I realized nobody was going to call me to make up these situations, you know. So yeah. you kind of have to do it yourself. To, it just takes a lot of time and a lot of persistence. You just got to. It's it's the thing of um, I'm just going to ignore everything that's interesting going on, and I'm just going to go in there as miserable as it can be and just do it every day <laughs> until it starts to work. You know, that's really what it. Takes, you know. Um, Yeah, I I feel like it's just work ethic, really. Yeah. yeah, What comes down to it: consistency and work ethic. Right. But friends of mine who are really always doing stuff. I mean, they just have incredible follow through you know someone like Jack White it's just yeah he's you know just whatever idea I mean he's really in there and he'll just work at it work at it, work at it you know yeah it, there's no I mean the, the idea is always romantic but the actual doing is not so romantic it's not
0: it's not so comfortable you know, and you have to accept that then it turns out not being what you had your mind set on that it was going to be, just like the car that you're not really driving. I think that that sets some that's people little, off, you know? Mm-hmm. But mostly the
2: effort. All, the all creative efforts are a compromise in the end. It's not quite what you wanted. That's that's why you do another one. Right. You know, for me, it's like I'll be making albums yeah. forever and still feel like... It's not quite like I wanted it to be, you know, rubber soul or hunky dory. It's just not even, you know what I mean? There's always this you know, unreachable that you're always gonna to get to. Or you try to get to that and you got this. And but that's the beauty of it.
0: That's about all I've got for you in this episode of LSQ. Thank you so much for listening, and major thanks to Rostam and Beck for their time. In a few weeks, you'll get a new LSQ, episode 13, with Best Coast's Bethany Cosentino. And after that, there's Death Cab for Cuties' Ben Gibbard to look forward to in mid-August. So please do subscribe if you haven't done so already. And if you want to share your thoughts in the form of a rating or a review, I'm told that kind of thing is helpful— You can always reach me with feedback or questions on Twitter, at JennyLSQ. I'll talk to you next time.